Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you that we are united with each other in our love of you. Lord, that you have come here, that you are with us. Lord, that we can sing your praises and experience your presence. And so that is our desire today. Would your peace and your grace be known here. Amen. You can be seated. Well, welcome. Thanks for being here. Happy Sunday morning. Glad we can worship together as a church family. A special welcome for those of you that are newer to Chapel Street, if you're a guest with us. We're so glad that you decided to join us, and we'd love just to meet you and to answer any questions that you might have about what we're all about here at Chapel Street. Uh, The best way to do that is to head to the welcome desk out in the lobby after the service. We'd love to just meet you in person, to get a little gift into your hands, and uh, to just thank you so much for joining us with your time here this morning. Uh, One thing, I think Pastor Sterling mentioned this last week, but we are really excited uh, one week from today on February 4th because it is Mill Creek Donut Day. And uh, we are, uh, of course, looking forward to that. And the reason that we're doing this is not just because Sterling and I want to eat donuts on the job, uh, although we do, uh, but we really believe that it's important and good for us to gather together as a church before and after service to not just come here to focus on God as as good and necessary and life-giving as that is, uh, but to also grow deeper in relationships with each other. Uh, And so next week, if you're able to be a part of worship, uh, we just want to encourage you, uh, whatever service you come to, to plan on arriving a little bit early or staying a little bit late. We'll have donuts out in the lobby. It'll be very loosely unstructured, just time in community. And we hope that you're able to stick around for that and eat a delicious donut. Uh, One thing we mention uh, consistently and and is worth repeating as well, uh, for those of you that give, uh, that worship through your generosity, we just want to thank you so much. Uh, we believe truly that, that worship is one of the ways that we can worship God. Um, and so for those of you that do, just thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for investing in the kingdom of God. Thank you for investing in what uh, God is doing here at Chapel Street. We're so grateful for all that you do. As you can see behind me, there are a variety of ways that you can give in person and online as well. And so uh, if this is your church home, we encourage you to worship in that way. Uh, would you stand with me if you're able as we continue in worship today? Two. I remember when I was uh, like five or six years old, I told my adopted parents, I told them that, you know, I don't need any friends and I'm not going to make any friends because I, you know, I didn't want to get hurt. Hi, I'm Jen Lindsay. I've been serving for Royal Family Kids Camp for 20 years. Royal Family Kids is a camp for kids in foster care, usually in at-risk homes. A lot of kids in the foster care system have trust issues, have issues um, bonding with other people. A lot of that has to do with moving from home to home. It has to do with abuse that they've experienced. My parents weren't able to take care of me around the age of three, three and a half. I got sent out to the foster care system and I went through you know, a series of four or five different families before I found the family I'm with now. So I was in the foster care system from the ages of three to eight, and I was a part of Royal Family Kids Camp from, you know, the earliest you can go, five years old till all the way throughout high school. Something I really enjoyed about the camp was the relationships you build with the counselors. Um, you know, you have all these fun activities. You go to the lake, uh, go fishing, go canoeing, spend, spend a day at the beach, whatever it is. but. Um, All that stuff was fun, but the most impactful part for me was definitely the relationship I ended up having with 
some of these counselors and like I felt like I was a valuable person. I felt like I was loved by these people and I just felt like they were just my family and they were my friends. I could tell that these people were people that I trusted and I could tell that they were people that cared for me. After I wasn't able to come to the camps anymore, I was like, well, I need to go as a counselor just you know, to make the same impact to these kids that the counselors then made on me. A lot of our counselors that were campers, that's one of the reasons they come back. They're like, camp was my consistent place in my life. No matter what happened in my life, I knew that I had camp. And now that I'm an adult, I want to do the same for someone else. I want to show them that no matter what happens in their lives, that there's camp. You know, I'm just trying to be, be a light to them and I'm trying to like show them the true hope um, through the gospel. Every camp of Royal Family, we do something called I Saw God. So at the end of camp, we say, who saw God today? And we go around and kids share stories of the day and how they saw God. So it's kind of a twofold to show them that God has been in every single aspect of camp and in their lives. A time to reflect on what they've been doing at camp and just a way to show all the goodness that God has in their lives. I think sometimes, especially for these kids, they have a hard time seeing the good. That's why we send home the photo album so that when they are at home and they're in, going through rough times, they can remember the positive memories that we provided to them, but also know that camp is coming again. Yeah, absolutely. We can applaud that. Uh, we, we at Chapel Street, we love uh, the Royal Family Kids Camp. Uh, we've had a partnership for over 20 years with this organization. We're so excited that God continues to, to write new stories uh, through volunteers and through the great work that they're doing. Uh, you might have noticed as you walked in, but today after the service, there will be a little kiosk out in the lobby uh, where you can learn more information about how you might be able to get plugged in this year. Uh, camp is June 9th through the 14th, but there are a variety of ways to serve, whether it's as a counselor during that week or even leading up to it to help prepare uh, for those kids. What a great way to love our neighbors, uh, to love kids in the foster care community. And so we're so excited about that. Uh, you can pick up one of these sheets as well. It has more information as well as a variety of ways for you to get involved. And I hope that you do that. Uh, let's pray together as we open up God's word. Heavenly Father, thanks for bringing us here today. Thanks for who you are. Lord, remind us anew of your grace and your mercy that you give us every day. Lord, our prayer is that we seek and experience you more, even in this moment, and so would you reveal yourself to us through your word. Amen. Back when I was in college, uh, one of the things I loved about my school was that our professors would often pray for us at the beginning of their classes. A lot of times they would do this, uh, as, you know, when giving a, a, an exam or a big project, it was a Christian school, and so it was just this really kind of special way to know that, that they cared about us. And oftentimes they would pray for peace of mind or for clarity or, or against anxiety to kind of overwhelm the preparation that we had done, and it was just really special to know that we were loved. Uh, one pr professor, though, did a little bit uh, different of a thing when she would pray. I don't know if you've ever known someone that has used prayer to complain about people. Anybody? <laughs> Uh, she would do that, though. She would pray, and it would, it would always be something like, you know, God, I pray 
that you would honor the amount of work done to prepare for this exam and nothing more. And I pray that these students would get the grade that they deserve and that you wouldn't honor any asks of divine intervention. Like, she would pray against us praying for this test. It's like, are you okay? Uh, And the thing is, I think that it worked because I was one of those students and I did not do well in that class. And I, you know, it was probably because I was lazy, but at the time I was like, man, prayer works. Prayer can make you get a C in macroeconomics. Who knew the power of prayer? Uh, Prayer, of course, is what we're talking about throughout this month. We're actually in the last week of this series called uh, Praying with Paul. And if you've been tracking with us, you know this, that that we've started the year looking at these early prayers given to some of the earliest Christians to ever live. Paul has been pouring his heart out in these letters, and, and we've been looking at how his desire is for the church to know God more, to experience his power to understand his will. And we've been looking at this and and reminding ourselves that the purpose is not just to look at Paul's prayer life, but for us to consider our own. For you and I to ask ourselves, what is prayer for us? What does it look like for prayer to become something that is no longer a burden or a source of stress, where it's no longer confusing, where we no longer use it to stress out college students? but where prayer can be a source of life and of joy. That we would experience a deeper prayer life as we learn what it looks like to live in the presence of God himself. This has been the goal of the series. We're going to turn our attention today to the final prayer of Paul of this study uh, in the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, you can start heading that way now. Uh, Philippians was a letter written from Paul to the church in Philippi, uh, and it was written while he was sitting in a jail cell. He's been imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and he writes to this church that he knows so well, and he prays joyfully and confidently and with abounding love for these early Christians. So, again, if you have a Bible, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 3. He says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Today, I just want to notice a few things with you as we look at this beautiful prayer of Paul, the first being a prayer of joy. That Paul, in his remembrance of this church in Philippi, is brought to this experience of just pure joy. A while ago, I was uh, over at my mom's house, and I came across my yearbook uh, from my senior year in high school. In fact, I brought a picture with me. Uh, This is high school Joe. He's the one on the right. That's the high school one. Uh, Someone on our staff was at service last night, and he told me that I looked like I was the president of the chess club, and he didn't say it in a nice way. It was... (laughs) It was an insult. Um, I thought that quote was like super deep and meaningful. I was like, this quote's going to change someone's life. It didn't. It's just a quote. Uh, but, but maybe you've experienced this when you've looked through a, a yearbook or old pictures or maybe just simply sharing stories from your past. 
I remember looking through this and just being completely brought back to this particular moment of my life. To consider friends that I haven't spoken to in years, experiences that I had had, and memories that I thought I had forgotten. And what I experienced was joy. Just this joy of this particular moment in time. And this is what Paul seems to be experiencing as well as he remembers this church in Philippi where it almost seems like he is overcome with an emotion and a feeling and an experience that contradicts what's going on in his life. Paul is in prison, kept from his calling, a future unknown. All he sees is hardship and pain around him. And yet, he experiences joy. In fact, Philippians often is referred to as the joy letter. He uses the word 15 times in just four chapters of writing. Now, joy is something that in Paul's mind is maybe a little bit different than what comes to mind for you. Oftentimes, for us, when we think of joy, we just think of like really happy. Like someone who's bubbly, man, that person is so joyful, so excited about their life. For Paul, though, joy was something a little bit more than that. At its root, the word for joy was closely linked to the word for grace. So one way to think about joy when you read it in the Bible is to live in a way that recognizes grace. To live not just from what you see around you, to live not just seeing the prison walls that you are kept in, but that Paul experienced joy because he lived by what he knew to be true. That even when it didn't look like it, God was giving him grace. God was still walking with him. God was blessing him. Look at verse 5. God has given him partners in the gospel. The word for partner that Paul uses in this verse is actually really important for us to understand. Uh, It's the Greek word koinonia, Oftentimes you'll see it translated as community or as fellowship, but partners really gets to the core of what he's saying here, that that Paul knows and what is giving Paul joy is that he has teammates, that he knows that there are people that are walking with him, united in a mission of God's love. The Philippians supported Paul financially and in prayers. They were loyal to him. They were united in their faith in Christ. They were partners in the gospel. Luke uses the same word to describe the early church. We see this in Acts chapter 2, that the church was devoted to God and to the fellowship, to, to the koinonia, to the community that God had given them. And this matters, first, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ because it shows us what our posture is to be in the church. That we, too, are to be partners, participants in what God is doing. I think this, for some of us, is perhaps one of the biggest temptations that we face. Living in suburban America, surrounded by comfort, where it is so easy to view the church as something that I consume rather than something that I help cultivate. For many people, the church is primarily about what I can get out of it. I want to find a church that has my preferred style of music, my favorite kind of preaching. I want a church that is friendly but not weird about it. I want a church that gives to the poor but doesn't ask too much of me. 
I want a church that speaks to the issues as long as they're on my side. Now, of course, it's not a bad thing to find a church that you love. But the danger that we must recognize in our own hearts is that it is so easy for church to primarily become about me. And this type of consumer mindset is nowhere to be found in the scripture. When you read the New Testament, primarily the imagery that is used to describe the church as a family or sometimes a body. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses that analogy in talking about the church. He says, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, if you are uh, a guest with us, if, if you're new to church, or if you're trying to figure out your faith, please know that, that there's no obligation in this message for you. But for the rest of us, for those that call Chapel Street Church our home, for those ha- that have declared our faith in Jesus, this is the invitation that we are given. To no longer see church as something that I observe or that I consume, but that I participate in. I am a partner. I am a partaker of the grace that I have been shown. I'm devoted to God and devoted to this koinonia that I have been placed in. This is what Paul experienced, and it allowed him to experience joy in a jail cell. If uh, you are looking for a prayer practice this week, we've been talking throughout the series how it's good to learn about and talk about prayer, but even better to actually pray. If you're looking for a practice, this would be a great and simple one to do. To think of the partners in the gospel that God has given you. The people he's put in your life. Who have pointed you closer to Jesus and to do what Paul did and thank God as you remember them. I think of my family, different friends, mentors who have pointed me closer to the love of God. I think of the two Wheaton College freshmen who signed up to join and serve my church's youth group when I was a freshman in high school, and for four years they were my small group leaders, and they walked with me and discipled me, and I do not know where I would be if they had not walked into my life. I think of many of you who have encouraged and loved my family and encouraged and prayed for this church. Those of you that serve the kids and students of our church, those of you that provide food and a smile and some hope to those who visit Shepherd's Heart. I think of those of you that are generous with your time and your resources. Those of you who show up here looking to make this a place of love and welcoming for every person those that are patient, grace-filled, who encourage each other as we pursue God imperfectly together. I think of you, and I thank God for you, because you are a partner with us in what God is doing. If you want to experience gratitude or joy this week, try this. Think of the people that God has brought into your life. This is the first thing, a prayer of joy. The next thing I want to show you from this prayer is a prayer of confidence. 
that Paul prays confidently to his God. Um, back when I was in college, there was a little diner that we used to go to called the Southside Diner. Uh, and picture like the most stereotypical small town college thing and the, like it was run down, kind of sketchy. All the waitresses called you hun for some reason, which made me uncomfortable. But the food was really good. And at the Southside Diner, on their menu, they had a thing called the Eliminator Challenge. And the Eliminator Challenge was basically all of the breakfast food that they could make all in one meal. It was like five plates of breakfast food, and they would just like put it all out on your table. And the deal was is that if you ate the whole thing, it was free. But if not, you had to pay like $25 or something, and you had to write on the wall of this restaurant your name and sign that you were eliminated. <laughs> now, you didn't know 18-year-old Joe. You wouldn't have liked him. But 18-year-old Joe was very confident in his ability to do pretty much anything, but especially in his ability to eat. And so like my first month or something, I went to the Southside Diner, and I signed up for the Eliminator Challenge, and I was like, man, this is going to be easy. I don't even think I skipped a meal that day. I was like, let's just add it on. And I made it about halfway through, and then I got to the pancakes, and that's always what gets you. And then I had a different kind of confidence that I was going to be sick. Um, so if you go to the Southside Diner in Marion, Indiana, look to the walls and you will see Joe Scavato eliminated because his eyes and his ego were bigger than his stomach. Now Paul has a similar type of confidence, thankfully put in a little bit better of a source. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you have heard that verse before. You're familiar with the ideas behind it, but a little bit of the history to help us understand what Paul is saying here. If you turn uh, in your Bibles to Acts 16, in fact, I'd encourage you to, to read through Acts 16 sometime today or, or later in the week, because it tells you the story of how Paul started the church in Philippi. We're told this, that he goes to Philippi and he starts preaching the gospel and we're told that the, uh, the first three people that came to faith, the founding members of this church, uh, were one, an upper-class woman named Lydia who was from a different part of the world, two, a slave possessed by a demon, and three, the Roman jail guard who tortured Paul in prison. Now, I don't know if any of you have planted a church before, but this is not who the experts would tell you to launch with. Those of you that launched this campus, however many years ago it was, I doubt that this was who Pastor Sterling was looking for, someone to put him in prison or possessed by a demon. And yet Paul is sure of this. He is confident, he is absolutely convinced, and what he's saying here is that the story of this church the story of each one of these three unlikely people of God showing up and proving to be greater than materialism and greater than spiritual powers and authorities and greater than allegiance to any other empire, that only God could do that. Only God could bring these three and unite them together in love. Only God could bring new life, new hope new purpose, that he is confident that what God has done is something that is not just a one-time moment of power, but an ongoing and everyday reality for everyone who puts their faith in Christ. That God continues to show up 
each and every day, that he is not done with us yet. And this is why it is so helpful, why we've been encouraging you to take these words of Paul and bring them into your own prayer life, because how easy is it for us to lose that confidence? When you look at a hurting and broken world, when you think of all the things that you have asked God for that for some reason he did not provide. When you look at your own life and see patterns that you wish you would stop doing, but it just can't seem to happen. How many of us have questioned and wondered and maybe even cried out, God, are you still with me? This is what time in prayer, and in particular time spent praying through the scripture does. It centers my heart away from my fear or my sin or my hurt, and it reminds me of what is true about God and true about me. Take this verse as an example. Consider all that we would proclaim if we were to pray this confidently to God. First, we would declare that God is the one that began the good work, and I am not. One of the most helpful things about prayer is that it reminds me that I'm not actually God that he started the good work, that everything I have, who I am as a person, that all of it is a gift of grace. It is not because of my goodness. I love how Jesus uh, puts it in John chapter 6. He, writes, or he says that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. God began the good work in you, not because you earned it, but because he loves you, as any good father does. Second, we would declare, if we were to make this prayer, that God will finish the work and I am not done. Paul expands on this idea later in his letter. We see this in Philippians chapter 3. He writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What he's saying here is that salvation is not the finish line of your spiritual journey. Salvation is not what Paul was pressing on for. He already had that. Rather, it was the starting point to a new life where we partner not only with others, but we partner with God himself and we surrender to him in obedience. Dallas Willard has this uh, great line about prayer. He says that prayer is talking with God about what we are doing together. Third, to declare this is to be reminded that God has not abandoned me, so I have hope. This would be my encouragement for you if, if you know what it's like to wonder if God is still with you or what he is doing. Maybe there's a part of your life where you've just been crying out for him to do something and it feels like you're getting nothing. For those of us that are weary, burdened, questioning where he is. I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm uh, chapter 94. He says, For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage. This is why prayer matters, because it is in prayer that we are reminded that God has not forsaken us. 
that he sees us as his heritage, as a treasure, as a person worth dying for. It's in prayer that our hearts and our minds are re-centered on what is true, that even in your diagnosis, or if your family is falling apart, or if you just can't seem to get out of your own way, that God is not done, and that he who began the good work will carry it on until it is finished. This is what we pray for, for renewed confidence in God's work. Here's the last thing I want to show you today, a prayer of abounding love. We'll finish this section of Philippians in verse 9. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the perfect way to end this series as we've been studying the prayers of Paul because this is the outcome of a life of prayer. If you are to live in the presence of God, this is what happens to you. You become a person of abounding love what Jesus calls the greatest and most important commandment. That you would love. You would reflect the heart and nature of God. Love, when Paul writes about it here again, similar to joy, is is maybe a little bit different than what we often think of in our world today, more than attraction, more than sentimentality, more than just good feelings toward another person. Look again at our text. Look at how this love is described. We see this as a love of discernment, a love of knowledge, a love that approves what is excellent. In other words, Christian love is not just wanting someone to be happy. Love is not opposed to happiness. Love often produces happiness, but true love, true Christian love that reflects who God is sets a much better goal than than happiness. True love pursues goodness. Thomas Aquinas, who was a theologian back in the 13th century, put it this way. He said that to love is to will the good of the other. We cannot abound in love for another person if we don't know what's good for them. To love is to recognize what is good and recognize what is not good and to work and will it for the person in your life. Parents, you know this to be true, right? Uh, Our son is currently in the the phase where the words, it's time to go to bed, are like the worst things you could say to a person. I don't understand it fully because it's the same thing every night. Uh, It's the same time. It's the same routine. And yet every time we say these words to him, he is just shocked and appalled that we are ripping him from this life that he has built for himself. (laughs) And if it were up to him, he would never nap again. And he would stay up all night watching TV and eating goldfish, and he would be so happy. But we would not be loving him well. Because love sets a higher goal than happiness. And we know that it's good for him to rest. And so we drag him to bed. But this is what Paul is saying. This is why over and over he has prayed that we would grow in the knowledge of God. That we would understand his will and his power. Because as we grow in this knowledge, we recognize that love is not just a matter of the heart, but also of the mind. 
And that as we grow in our knowledge of what is good, we would use that so that we could abound in love for other people. And that we would work tirelessly, that we would be devoted to willing that good for the people in our lives. He expands on this idea in the end of uh, his letter, Philippians chapter 4. He says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Anybody find that list just like super easy? You wake up and just immediately go to things that are worthy of praise. Or are you like me, and, and more likely what comes to mind are things that cause anxiety and not peace, or jealousy and not contentment, or anger and not excellence. See, prayer matters because this is the world that we live in. A while ago, Barna released a study showing that uh, for uh, Christians in my generation, for, for the millennial Christians, we spend about uh, 3,000 hours a year consuming digital content. So about a third of our lives are spent watching screens, which is concerning. Uh, but of those hours, about 150 of them are uh, Christian or faith-based or teaching the things of God. It's a 20 to 1 ratio. The political noise this year is only going to go up and not down as will the risk that we allow ourselves to get so worked up that we rationalize disdain or even hatred for those that we disagree with. Every day we face the temptation to compare our lives to others, social media being a main culprit of this, leading either to pride or insecurity, both of which make it very difficult to love. I could keep going, whether it's the temptation to give in to anger or despair or lust or jealousy, you fill in the blank for your own life. The point is that if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to be formed into a person of abounding love, this hour once a week is not enough. We must build into our lives habits and rhythms of prayer to get quiet in solitude, and to center our minds away from all the things of the world, the good and the bad, and to focus on what is truly honorable and just and commendable and worthy of praise. This is the prize that Paul was talking about, the goal that he was pressing on for, a life that is formed in his image. Let this be our prayer. Father, thank you again for who you are, for the people that you've brought into our lives, for this church family that you have surrounded us by. Lord, our prayer is for those who are wondering where you are in their lives, who have lost confidence in your good work. God, would you remind them now that even in this moment, your spirit is with them. Lord, our desire more than anything else is to be people of abounding love. And so would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us into stillness so we can experience you? We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.
uh, if our prayer team can pray with you, anything going on in your life, on, on your heart, uh, we'd be honored to do so. We'll be available up in the front in just a moment. Would you receive now today's benediction? Would you go now in the knowledge and the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, confident in the work that he is doing, growing in abounding love? Amen.